Rob. Yo, what's up, man? Not much. How you doing? Pretty good, man. So this is um the Rock Show episode seventy one, and um wow. who are we talking about today? Talking about a great band called the White Stripes. Now, They're pretty think? much. They were pretty think? good. Yeah. They, well, they were great. I mean, they were very popular. Uh, they won a couple of Grammys for what that's worth, and uh, they made some great garage rock. But they didn't last very long together. No, no, only about, uh, I guess, about 10 years. But, I mean, uh, you know, 10 years, and then they went on hiatus a little bit, and then they finally broke up. Yeah. You know, but uh, it's a very interesting story. Um, I think Jack White is uh, an interesting guy, good guitar yes, player. Yes, yes. So let me tell you a little inside story. A buddy of mine that used to hang out in this bar in Detroit. Yeah. He used to know this guy called uh, Drunk Jack. Yeah. So this character, Drunk Jack, would come into the bar. He would play music and people would buy him drink right. and and do all this kind of stuff. In a Michigan bar, like a little dive bar, he would just go there and play yeah. for a few hours. Years later, my buddy goes, that fucking guy that was fucking Jack, <laughs> Drunk Jack. Okay. Oh, that was man. Jack White. <laughs> wow. Wow. Well, I mean, he, he started out in the bars playing in a couple of bands uh, even before he, he met uh, Meg White. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it's a great story. I mean, actually, the White Stripes are one of my biggest regrets because I like the band a lot. I have every one of their albums, but I never saw them live. And it's one of my biggest regrets that I never did. I you also saw them? them live in Coney Island um, in uh, the Cyclone Stadium. I saw them, they were the headline and they show with a bunch of different bands. I couldn't name the other band, but the headliner was the White Stripe and they went under for 90 minutes. They killed it. What What year was that around, approximately? Jesus Christ. This got to be, um, this probably was like, um, it was the album before the Seven Nation. Yeah, it was the one with the uh, White Blood Cells, the one with, the one with uh, Fell in Love with a Girl on it. Yeah, that's I think yeah, that's it. Yeah, that was the album that broke them pretty much. Yeah, so I went to that day and it was like a thing a friend of mine had tickets. Hey, dude, I got some tickets for the Coney Island. You wanna come? And yeah. I had nothing to do. I'd say, All right, let's go and it turned out to be a great night and they I was sure. right on the floor when they played. It was crazy. Yeah, I mean what what's always blown me away about them is that for two people, really just a guitar player and a drummer, they had this huge sound and it really was like something that it was like almost magic like how the hell did they come up with i mean he didn't have a bass player but there was enough bottom in their sound that sounded like they had a bass player you know and you know what and meg was not a very good drummer they no, always shit I mean, on her she, well everybody likes to shit on her uh, first of all because she's a girl second of all because she isn't that good but if you look at what they do She's good enough. She was good enough for Jack White, like for what he right. was playing, and he and he took the guitar and pretty much made it sound like a bass because everybody told him that Seven Nation they thought it was a bass. Yeah, he just did something with the uh, whammy pads that changed the sound, and it came out with that doom, 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 and right, it's like right. holy shit. Yeah, but I mean, if you listen to the earliest stuff, which is like, uh, like the first album, which is like bluesy heavy garage sounding punk almost yeah okay uh it just had a lot of distortion and yes. he used distortion in a way to
to get that bottom without having to have a base there. And I think it's like pure genius. And what else they used to do too, we'll get into it in a minute, is they would they would use antiquated equipment when they recorded. Yeah. They used old-fashioned stuff. They would look for studios around the world that had these things and recorded in like pre-1960 sounding studios. And it's pretty amazing. And that sound was definitely special, you know, the way they did it. Do you ever seen yeah. the thing? Um, the thing with him making a guitar out of a bottle and a nail. You ever seen that thing on YouTube? I, I, yeah, I think I did. Yeah, yeah. He makes the sound out of it. Yeah. Like it yeah. They had a thing with him. It's like him, Jimmy Page, and the Edge from U2, and they're like sitting around talking about, and they both swear that he thought he had a bass in that fucking song, um, Seven Nation. He said no, it wasn't. He who, showed him pretty who much. Thought he had- who thought he had a Jimmy bass? Page and um and Edge were the first holder. They thought he was playing a bass. And he said, "No, I, this is what I did." And he showed what he did. It's a pretty cool video. Yeah, yeah, I think I did see that uh, a long time ago. But all right, so let's let's get into this. Um, Jack White was really born Jack Gillis on July 9th, nineteen seventy five, in Detroit. Yep. And the other half of the White Stripes is Meg White, born December tenth, nineteen seventy four in Gross Point Farms, Michigan. Now, Jack was a senior in high school when he met Meg. Uh, Meg's, uh, Meg's last name was White. We'll get into that in a minute, how that got to be. But uh, they met at a place called the restaurant Memphis Smoke, okay? Uh, and Jack used to read poetry at this restaurant, and she was a waitress. It was like an open mic type thing that he would do. Yeah. And they became fast friends and started to go out together to different clubs, to see different bands, all part of the whole music scene around Detroit at the time. Um, now, White, known at that point, Gillis, played drums with some friends, but got his first professional job in a band drumming for the cowpunk band Goober and the Peas. Yep. Okay. Uh, that would be short-lived. Um they would be having a, a a hot affair for a while, uh, Jack and Meg, and they got married on September 21st, 1996. Uh, what Jack did, contrary to what most people do, is Meg didn't take his last name and became Meg Gillis. He took her last name and became Jack White, which years ago when I heard about this, I didn't even know you could do that, but apparently you can. Yeah, you can do that. It's like yeah. most most traditionists demand a woman take the man's last name. Right. But for some reason, he took her name, I guess. Maybe he just wanted to have her. He thought White sounded cooler than Gillis. I never got a real reason. I thought the name White sounded was way better than Gillis. Like Jack yeah. White, that's a much better. I think he still even go by the name Jack White. Yeah, yeah. He still uses that name. Um, Goober and the Peas broke up not too long after they got married. Uh, and he began playing with a bunch of bands, um, one band called The Henchmen, one band called uh, Two Stark Tabernacle, and another band called The Go. Now, The Go was a band, I just got to mention as a side note, that I was starting to pay attention to around that time, uh, 1999. They came out with an album called What You Doing? And they are still around. They've put out a couple of albums over the years. I want to say maybe about four or five. I bought the first two, and then I kind of tuned out with them. I think changed a little bit their style. But the first album called What You Doing, and Jack White plays. He's, he was actually out of the band. 
but he still plays on the album and does some of the lead guitar work. Um, you have to hear this album. It's, it's just a throwback garage rock classic. Uh, you know, me and Keith, right? You're my friend, Keith. Yeah. We went to see the go a bunch of times at that time, because what was happening in 99, 2000, 2001, there was like a research of just really good garage rock music. And, I was really into it. Like I saw the go at CBGB's and uh, what was the other place? Uh, Max's. Uh, what was the name of that place? Not Max's Kansas City because it was gone. Uh, it, what was it? A place in Hoboken. Wasn't it just called Maxwell's? There, there Maxwell. was a Maxwell and there was another yeah. one like Uncle Jimmy also had live bands. No, it wasn't that. It was Maxwell's in Hoboken. I Maxwell, mean, right. And that, that was a great fucking show. We saw them on their second album tour and it was pretty good. But then they kind of changed their sound a little bit, and I didn't like them as much anymore. But the first album, "What You're Doing," is is awesome, and Jack was in, you know was involved with that. But in '97, Mike, let me ask you a quick question for people that know doesn't they don't know the terminology of um what what is your terminology of a garage band? Ah, good question. Okay, um, well, you know, you kind of think of a guitar-driven. 1960s sound. Uh, I would say one of the first real garage rock songs, if I could think of it, would be like Stone's Satisfaction. Okay, okay. fuzzy guitar, fuzzy guitar, distorted guitars, primitive sounding, maybe not the best musically, but, but you know, kind of like what punk rock, became yeah you know but more of a an earlier version and there was some psychedelic elements to garage rock in the 60s that like in the 80s when it resurfaced with bands like the fuzz tones and the chesterfield King, they kind of carried that psychedelic thing over but in the 90s what i was noticing it wasn't so much of a psychedelic garage rock uh kind of like you know reinventing it was it was more straight ahead you know guitar sounding punk influenced but a little more involved you know? all right yeah and uh, yeah i mean you know people have different definitions of it but that's pretty much how i look at it you know um in 97 meg started playing drums and at first it wasn't even like a serious thing she was like doing it almost just on a lock but jack liked the way she played and encouraged her and started to be kind of inspired by jamming with her a little bit that he was doing as a two-piece. All right. Now he had some different projects going on, but he decided to, to be in a band with his wife. Uh, and they were going to call the band, the white stripes because Meg loved peppermints and their last name was white. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, if you look at, a, if you look at a peppermint, you know, it looks like uh, they used to use that symbol, like on their their drums and shit like that. Yeah, and what was the deal with the red, white? Like they always wore like red or black. You know, that was pretty much the costume. Yeah. Why? Why was that? Do you even know? It, it was a it was a public persona that they wanted to go with. They had a few things that they always did. They either wore red, black, or white. Yep. For comedy. They did everything. There's a lot of references to the number three. Yes. In in their songs. Uh, every album, I think, has something. Um, and the idea was that Jack believed in vocals, guitar, and drums. 
is the the basis of rock and roll. Yeah. Okay. And that's all you really need. And it was a primitive mentality, you know, to 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 do that, you know, given his talent. I mean, he could play all kinds of instruments, but he just kept it simple in that band as a two piece. Um, <clears throat> they also would never do interviews apart. They always did interviews together. Yeah. Um, they would put, like I said, white or red or black colors on their guitars. The the, the drums had that peppermint uh, logo on it. Uh, they would have backdrops in red and black and white like that on stage. It was just like a, a public persona that they were putting out there to make people recognize them, give them a look, you know. Um, the first gig they ever did is the White Stripes. Wait up, before you get into what was the whole deal with them when they also came out that were telling people they were brothers and sister? Why did they do that? Oh, oh yes, yes, I forgot that. Um, I don't know why exactly they did it, man? I, I, I think it was probably to trick trip people up a little bit, and also because they both had the last name, and people probably. I don't know. Looked at it, them being brother and sister. I don't know. I think it was a way to maybe just trip up people. They didn't give a Yeah, fuck. but they definitely said it a few times, you know? Yeah, no, they did. Yeah. I do remember that. I always uh, thought that was weird. Like, why Why were they using that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, you know, he's an interesting cat. Uh, you know, he was going to be a priest at one point. Yeah, I saw. I read, he, he, was, he definitely was a weird guy. Yeah, well, listen, most great musicians are. Jimmy Page, right? You said Jimmy Page before. Yeah. That's, you know, he's a weird dude. You know, it, it's all part of that creativeness. You know, the more creative you are, sometimes the more eccentric you are. And the guy actually went to college. He had a pretty good education. I think he went to a trade school also. He was going to yeah. be like an upholsterer or something. Yeah, he was that. an upholsterer. He wasn't going to do the union, but the, he wasn't, a, you know, he wasn't a stupid guy. He could have no. done anything he wanted. No, very talented. Uh, yeah. And, and musical from a young age. Uh, we're talking like teenager, you know, even he, he had his, he, I mean, he was writing poetry in senior year. You yeah, know, like uh, he's a songwriter. He got voice. He played guitar. He also played the piano, and he played the Mandalorian, which uh, Dan Sweeney from uh, no, you think the rabbit it's prey. Not a, it's not a Mandalorian, man. A Mandalorian is from Star Wars. Mandalorian. No, the Mandalorian. <laughs> I mean Mandalorian. Yeah. <laughs> Again, like just uh, like uh, K and C. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, the yeah, first, the, the that's a little thing, thing. That's a little thing that got a heavy sound, man. Where well, you can oh, hear yeah. that instrument. Yes, yes, and it has almost an acoustic sound, but it's loud. Yeah, it's loud. It's incredible. Yeah. Like when yeah. you hear that thing, it's like holy shit, man. Yeah, very distinctive. Very. A lot of bands have used that for good effect. Um, they did their first gig August fourteenth, nineteen ninety seven, at the Gold Dollar Bar in Detroit, yeah. and they quickly got popular in the whole underground Michigan garage punk scene that was going on. Uh, there was a lot of bands that were part of this. The Henchmen which was one band that he had been involved with before. The Dirt Bombs, the Gories, the Rocket 45s, Rocket 455s, excuse me. Um, now, the Dirt Bombs and the Gories featured a guy named Jim Diamond, okay? Yeah. Who was a pretty cool dude, produced a lot of people, would end up producing the White Stripes as well. Um, in 98, Jack was approached by Dave Buick, the owner yeah. of independent Detroit-based garage punk label Italy Records uh, about putting out a single. 
at first you said no because he figured he'd have to pay for the whole thing and he thought it'd be too expensive. But Dave offered to pay for the whole cost. So we said, okay. And that would be the first White Stripes single and it would be released in February of 98 called Let's Shake Hands. Uh, there's only a thousand copies of this on vinyl. So if you have it, it's pretty rare. Oh, yeah, they, they, they did that twice, right? They released they a couple like... times. Yeah, they did it a few times with uh, different releases. I'll go into that. But in October of 98, uh, they would also come out with a second single that year called Lafayette Blues. Yeah. Again, that was another one. Thousand vinyls, copies made. In 99... Mike, let me ask you, uh, is, it a rare, is it rare with somebody who actually pay for your studio time and... How do you make money off that? Or does the guy just own the song, the guy that produced you or put the money up? You know, you hear all kinds of stories with bands. Some some bands have had to pay to really get things done, and they might get some free uh, recording time, but they got to press their own CDs or records. or whatever. There's always different deals. Some people get really screwed, and they end up paying for a lot. Uh, this looked like... You know, this guy was paying for everything, so he thought he could. But it was a limited release of only a thousand vinyl copies. You know. Yep, limited release. Right, right. So in '99, after those two releases, they would get signed to the California-based label called Sympathy for the Record Industry, and they would release their first album called The White Stripes, and there would be a single called The Big Three Killed My Baby. <laughs> that came out fifteenth, nineteen ninety nine. Great song. Uh, you know, I mean, you listen to this album. I, I want to say it's probably Jack White says it's their best. I would probably put it like number two, or maybe number three. But I think it's a fantastic album. Uh, raw, total garage sounding, primitive, lo-fi. Lo-fi. I mean, it's just a guitar and drums. Yep. Okay? But they're just they, 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 in the production and in the way he plays these guitars, he makes it sound like there's a bass in there. There's a lot of distortion, a lot of bottom. So it sounds like a big, full, you know, four-piece band or even a five-piece band because in some of the later albums, not so much on this first one, he actually started putting in guitar solos and stuff like that, and he was starting to get the attention. Of, of you know being a real musician instead of like this kind of punkish you know garage sounding dude um the album was produced by jim diamond like i mentioned yeah um, and it was recorded at the ghetto recorder studio in detroit the album was dedicated to mississippi delta blues guy son house and he was a big influence on jack uh, there's songs on that album where he'll reference Sun House's um, John the Revelator, okay, which is an old blues song. They would do a version on a later album of uh, Sun House's song called Death Letter, which is fucking great. Um, Sun House is somebody, if we get into a, we should do like a blues show later on. I'd like to do a show where we talk about Sun House, Howlin' Wolf, uh, Sonny Boy Williamson, you know, a bunch of these old blues guys do like an hour on that, you know. Yeah, we could put something together for yeah, right. Yeah. Maybe for one of my favorites. He's I, I listen to him quite a bit. Uh, maybe for July, right? July was maybe for July, do it or something or past July. I, I think August. I think we're good through July. Okay. 
Okay, but we'll we'll definitely talk about doing that. Now, blues in general were a very big influence on this band. Okay, Jack was very influenced by, like I said, uh, you know, Sunhouse, Howlin' Wolf, Muddy Waters. He they would cover Robert Johnson's "Stop Breaking Down." Okay, yeah, that's great. Which is probably, God, you know, you think of all the versions of that. The Stones did a great version on, uh, on, uh, uh, Exile on Main Street. And I think this version of theirs could even be better than the Stones version or just as good. Um, and Jack always says, this is our best album. We never surpassed it. I don't totally agree with him. I think that they kind of evolved a little bit. You can go with that. But definitely as a, as a, as a whole, it's, it's definitely in their top three. Um, to me, you know what's my favorite album? Um, Get Behind Me, Satan. Yeah, I like that album. And that's, I love that album. That album is very different. We'll go into that. It's very different than some of the others. It has piano on it and, you know, all kinds of shit. Yeah, I just love the way that album sounded. Like, from yeah. beginning to end, it was like a great production. Like, everything. Yeah. Like, every song I thought was good. And um, it was a great album. You know what? Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll go into the making of that in a few minutes. Um, at the end of 99... They would release a split single with the Detroit band, the Dirt Bombs. Two thousand copies of this would be made. Uh, it was basically just you know them on the A side and, and the Dirt Bombs on the B side. Very hard to find this. If you have it, hold on to it. It's worth something. So that's a com- almost like a compilation album, right? Well, it's it's a single. Just the, the White Stripes on one side and 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 the Dirt Bombs on the B side. Oh, okay. I thought maybe yeah. they each did a song. So it's just a single, one single. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's rare. Did a lot of it, bands do that back in the days? It used to be back in the day. Yeah, you would have that for a lot of, you know, that, that used to happen often in the punk scene in the 70s. You might have a split single on two, two bands on the same label, put out something. Uh, it happened quite a bit. It was it, usually when it was done, it wouldn't be a big release. It would be a, a, a small amount. So those kinds of things are always rare, you know? Um. June twentieth, two thousand, the band would start. Uh, it would it would release its second album called "The Steel," and that means the style in Dutch. And it was released on the Sympathy for the Wrecking Industry. It was their second album, and yeah. the band at this point had a reputation for being very lo-fi, and they would keep the recording of this album as 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 primitive. What they would do is, you know, they would record this album in Jack's living room on an eight track analog. So you can't get much more primitive than that. All right. Uh, what, what's good about them. If you're using an eight track is really, you got the drums on one track, you got the guitar on another track and you got the vocals on another track. So wow. you have five extra tracks to do a little overdubbing, but you know, some people wouldn't feel comfortable with that. Some people would say, no, nah, I need 16. Yeah, but but they didn't do that. They 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 kept it simple. There wasn't going to be a lot of overdubs. I bet they didn't even use all eight, to be honest with you, if I had to guess. Yeah. Uh, and the fact that it was recorded in his living room, I just can't see how you can get any any more raw than that. You know, that album is great. Um, I I kind of put that as my favorite album. This okay. Uh, it, it's it's a heavy album, as much as the first one is. But it's kind of like because of the the lo-fi production, it has a sound that's 
just a little different, a little more interesting than the first one, I think. Um, De Steel was a reference to the De Steel art movement from, I think, in the early part of the 20th century. And it was considered minimalistic. And the band related to that because they would be, they're, they're about as minimalistic as you can be. Yeah. To, you know, to, it was to, another thing. They always had great videos. Yeah. You know, and I really think that helped the music or their video. They had yeah. some very strange videos back they, in the day. They, they, they did. And, and when they finally break on the next album, we'll talk about that because they would win an award for that. But uh, in December of 2000, the band released a three song EP of Captain Beefheart songs. OK, and that came out on Sub Pop and it was called Party of Special Things to Do. And it was three songs done by originally by Captain Beefheart. The title track, Party of Special Things to Do, Dinah Pig, and Ashtray Hart. Uh, he's a guy we got to do a show about, too. Okay. Uh, you ever hear of Captain Beefheart? Yeah. All right. A lot of people don't know. They might know the name, but they don't know the music. Uh, anybody unsure, just check out an album called Trout Mask Replica or an album called Safe as Milk. And you'll be turned on to it. It's it's like a blues driven it's kinda like a bluesy zapper. <laughs> yeah. But it's okay. like very it sounds very old and it's not. Right. Well yeah, he had that kind of gravelly old man voice, you know. Yeah. So it sounds like you think like, oh my God, and then you look at it, oh it wasn't taped that it wasn't it's yeah. not really that well, old. Had, you know? He had a long career from the sixties to yeah. uh like the late nineties. Um July third, two thousand and one they would come out with their third album. Now, what I got to mention is that Distill actually did pretty well commercially, the second album, and it got to number 38 on the Billboard Independent record charts. But with the third album, White Blood Cells, coming out in July of 2001, they would, they would hit gold with this because the band, uh, they, they, the album would do well based on the song Fell in Love with a Girl, and it would actually be re-released on a major label called V2 Records a year later. And that would help push the, the album into a lot more record sales. Uh, the UK caught on to the band a lot with that particular album release. Um, they were critically acclaimed on both sides of the Atlantic, actually, by the time they did that album. You know what's uh, weird? Not they really never got shit on it. Like, the only the only no. problem they ever got, the only criticism they ever got was Meg on 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 the drum. But Jack was like, "I'm fine with that, man, because she she yeah. vibes with me." Yeah, I mean, he put that to sleep pretty much when people would comment yeah. on on her being limited in her in her skill drumming skills. I I like I said before, I think you know, just because you're limited doesn't mean you suck. All right. If it's good for what you do, I mean, so many punk bands, you know, they just you just had to carry the beat. That's it. Yeah, and that's, that's it. <laughs> that could be hard enough to do. That could be hard enough to do when you're playing a million miles an hour. Yeah. All right. So, you know, it's I can't do it. So, you know, I mean, I, I, I always laugh when people say, oh, you know, bands like the Ramones, oh, you know, they're, they're limited. Well, yeah, but they sound good for what they do. Yeah, they did sound good for what they're good, you know. You know, and the White Stripes were the same. You had two people carrying this big sound all alone. And you know and what? It's amazing. For a band with only two people, I always swore there were four people for some reason. <laughs> they always, they, you know, and we've been repeating ourselves saying it, but it's fucking true. It you sounded know? like a much bigger band. <laughs> it did. It did. And I don't think all that was just in the production. Because if you listen to their live tracks. They, uh, they sound just as good. 
and just as good and and actually sometimes better. Yeah. Okay. Um, the Daily Mirror in the UK would would make a uh, a really outstanding comment about them, calling them the greatest band since the Sex Pistols. Wow. Okay, that's a big fucking you know cri- you know critique right there saying that. It's funny because you know in the early '90s I remember with the whole Brit pop thing like Oasis and stuff. You know the, the British press was saying like you know Oasis is the greatest thing, Beatles. You know, so I guess whatever they compare it to in England. But that's that was a good compliment. Um, the album did go gold, and you know based on that single, fell in love with the girl. Now the video you mentioned their videos, it was a Lego animation for that song. Okay, it was a Lego animation video with Megan Jack as Lego characters playing and stuff. And, and, and it just became a huge hit on MTV. And they, they would win uh, three MTV Video Music Awards, one for Best Breakthrough Video, one for the special effects, and one for Best Editing in that year. Okay, so that's pretty good. Um, they had other videos that were interesting. Uh, I remember, what was that one? Um, the Hardest Button to Button? Yeah, they they always they, they always have originally some weird fucking video. They they would be weird but simple. Not like like it would be like these cuts where they would appear or disappear and it would be like all different locations. Uh you know, it was never like um they they didn't have too many videos I don't think or any videos really with them just performing simply. Like there was always something going on in the background. But it was a simple video. It wasn't like this big outlandish thing, you know? No, they were always simple, but they always were, like, very weird. They were very, weird, uh, weird very and it, avant-garde. I, I, yeah, I mean, I'll say that, you know, I, I'll say this. I think the White Stripes are, are probably one of the most original and best bands of the last, wow, 25 years? I think wow. maybe that's I don't know. Am I wrong? Can you think of another band that did what they did and and even had the popularity? Not that you have to have that, but I just think like they actually were original in what they were doing. And not too many bands really have in the last 25 years have been so original as them. You know? They were unique, man. Definitely. Definitely. Now, in, in 2002, the band did four shows at the Bowery Ballroom here in the city. And uh, these shows were filmed by director George Roca, and he was putting up, you know, a live collection together called Nobody Knows How to Talk to Children. And it never got released because the band squashed it. What happened was it was supposed to be a big release, uh, I think, in the theaters and everything. But George Roca started showing it without their permission at the Seattle Film Festival. And they just said fuck it we're not putting it out and it's a bootleg now if you could find it it's i've seen clips of it it's it's pretty cool there's some there's some good footage there yeah they were also in that movie what was it 200 cigarettes or whatever yeah i forgot about that they were I, in I, that movie and they pretty much played themselves i think yeah i think they were the white stripes right they yeah. were the same yeah um the fourth album now would be huge okay uh the following year in 2003 they would release Elephant. And it was recorded over a two-week period in London in 2002. And Jack self-produced this album using old antiquated equipment 
intentionally, like I was saying before. Uh, most of the equipment in this London studio was from before 1960, which is a sound he was looking for. And uh, the album would be released on V2 Records again, and it was the band's first major label debut. They their their second their their third album would come out on V2, but it was after it was already released by Sympathy for the Record Industry. So this was their first major release on a on a major label. And they had the hit Seven Nation Army. Uh, it would go double platinum in Britain. Yeah. And they go platinum in the United States. Uh, Jack's guitar style changed at, on this album. He started having a lot more solos. Dude, but you want to hear something crazy? That song kind of became a spoiled anthem. Yeah. For soccer, oh. like when they come out in soccer. Dun, 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 dun. And people use that as a chant. It, it's crazy. A lot of yeah, you were hearing it at soccer matches. You were hearing them in hockey games. Too. Even baseball, everything you would yeah. hear that it was crazy. Yeah, it was. Re- you couldn't get away, and the video was cool. You know, you couldn't get away from that song for a while, and I liked it. I it mean, became, it was- yeah, it became like that sports sucker, like one more chance or. It's like those songs you always see in sports. It's like one of those songs, you know. We are the champion in that song. You know, it became it became an anthem, like like Gary Glitter's rock and roll, right? You know, yeah. You know, you want to hear up. Bow and Biscuit was in um um the Hateful Eight. Yes, Bow and Biscuit's a great fucking song. That's a great song. I love that song. I do too. Um, what was happening was it? You know, he was putting in a lot more solos on this album. And it got the attention of a lot of musicians in general. You know, people were starting to compare him to Jimmy Page, which was a big deal, is a big deal. Uh, They would win a Grammy for this album, Best Alternate Music Album in 2004. Uh, Again, you know, being prolific and nonstop between touring and recording, a year later, they were going to make another album, 2005. It was called Get Behind Me, Satan. Uh, I always thought that was an interesting title because it is from the Bible. Yeah. Uh, and he was going to be a priest at one point, I had heard. So I thought that was kind of an interesting thing. There was some interesting artwork on that album, too. Like, it was just the kind of two of them on the album cover facing each other. I think they're holding an album. No, they're, they're, they're facing each other away. Right, opposite ways. Right? Yeah, there, so, there's a mic in the middle, so she's holding an apple, but the hands are reaching out to each other in the back. Yeah, yeah. Now there's a there's a picture of Jack, I believe, on the inside of that cover with this like really sexy black girl. Okay, and I I, I had heard that that was his girlfriend or going to be his wife, but it never happened. I think there was there was a story I heard where he got married in the Amazon or something, but it wasn't true. You know, oh my god. He ended up getting like because because they got divorced, Megan Megan Jack. I think in. Uh, they never really talk about it, but I think it was like 2003 or something like that. They didn't last that long married, but they stayed together in the band. Yeah. Okay. And it wasn't, it wasn't a problem. So I don't know what their relationship was like, but you know, I had heard that he was like hooked up with that black girl, but I could be wrong. It was like a rumor going around, but uh, this is a different album. Get behind me. Satan. Uh, To me, this is my favorite album. Yeah. Yeah. I like it a lot. Uh, The, I like everything by them. I like the, that they, opening song, Blue Orchid, and then My Doorbell, Little Ghost yeah. is good, too. Right, right. Little Ghost, Little yeah, Ghost. Yeah, it's fucking fantastic. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Now, but 
it was different too because they had some piano driven songs. Yeah. Okay, like that's you know, forever for her is over for me. Uh, Blue Orchid was a rocking song that was heavy. That was a great song. Uh, but the album was kind of less bluesy than the others, if you notice. Yeah, this was a um, little bit more like rock and roll, definitely. Rock and roll, but then it would have like he was dabbling in some different sounds. Yeah. Okay. The piano and stuff like that, but they hadn't really, you know, had too many songs with that in it. Uh, this would win another Grammy for them. Uh, again, best alternate music album in 2005. So they were on top of the world still, yeah. even, you know, even after Seven Nation Army and everything. You know what song I love? I'm lonely, but I ain't that lonely yet. <laughs> I'm lonely, but I ain't that lonely yet. Yep. That's where he got rid of that black girl. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe. Uh, <laughs> the band now was always touring. Uh, but on a Japanese leg of their world tour, they had to postpone because um, Jack had like strained vocal cords. He wasn't allowed to sing or speak for quite some time. Um, he would get back on track. Uh, they would release an EP in November of 2005 called Walking with the Ghost. And that featured a title track, Walking with the Ghost, and four other live tracks. Uh, in November of 2006, they had a very limited release of what was called an avant-garde orchestral music album. Mm -hmm. uh, Jack put it in London, and it was, again, a very limited release, and it sold out very quickly. Very hard to find that. Um, January of 2007, V2 Records would go out of business. And since the White Stripes contract was actually already up, the band was... For a very short time without a contract, but they went over to Warner Brothers pretty much right away and they got a one record deal. Now, I remember hearing about this uh, and I was kind of listening to Get Behind Me Satan a lot. And then I heard that their record company went under. So it was kind of like, all right, who's going to pick them up? And, and they go to Warner Brothers. And then I hear it's only a one record deal. Uh oh. You know, what does that mean? That, that means one of two things. Either they're going to break up after this album. Or Warner Brothers doesn't feel that they want to be responsible for them for more than one album. They're going to check and see if they could still sell. Okay. And now the last two albums did fantastic. Last three albums. Yeah. Okay. Especially, especially the last two did really good. But you're kind of, you know, when you hear something like that and you go, well, why are they only getting a one record deal? Either they, you know, usually if you, you know, you're going to want a three record deal. That's more. I think the reason they did it because they wanted to do one more album pretty much for their fans because I think they were already on the way out. Well, that there might be some truth to that or they were just planning to do one more album and break up and that would be yeah. it. Uh, but, you know, when you research the story, it's, it's a little gray area. It's hard to tell. Uh, they, they, would, they would release their sixth album on Warner Brothers called Icky Thump and it came out in June of 2007. Uh, it entered the UK charts at number one and the US charts at number two. So if they had any doubts, that probably went out the window. As soon as the album came out, it was basically number one and number two on both sides of the Atlantic. It was a pretty good album. Yeah. I, don't, I don't see any weakness. I thought, I thought no. it was as good as ever. It was a, it, it's actually, you know, considering it's their last studio album, it kind of brings everything back full circle. Okay. Because it's, it's, it's a more garagey blues-driven kind of album with some little punk influences in there. But it would be recorded in three weeks 
which was their longest ever in recording anything. These guys were like boom, boom, quick in the studio. It wasn't like, you know, six months of overdubs. Okay. And they could have been like that, but they, they weren't. Uh, I like the title track, Inky Thump. And then they had that song Conquest, which was kind of like, it had like a mariachi kind of thing with the video with the bull. Yeah. Okay. And there was actually like a little bit of humor in that video. And, uh, you know, like him fighting the bull as the matador and everything. And uh, I like that song. I like that whole album. I think that they. You know what's right? Have you ever seen the one uh, Ike Tum? That song, you know, they got to think about the Mexican no, war in it at yeah, the yeah, end. Yeah, Icky, Icky Thump. It's a, it, Icky Thump. Yeah, it's, they about, got the, it's about like illegal immigrants. Yeah, but did you see the war at the end, the Great War of Mexico? Oh, yeah, in the video. Yeah. <laughs> Another video? <laughs> well, that was, that was a little. Yeah, and that was a little like, a, what do you call it? Uh, prophetic programming? What do they call it? A uh, predictive, predictive programming. programming. Yeah, you go. <laughs> I was laughing. I was laughing every time I would think of that. Oh, yeah. the fucking the Great War of Mexico. The, the, the U.S. is building a wall to keep Mexicans out. <laughs> Maybe that's how Trump got the idea. I, I think he got the idea for Arrested Development, to tell you the truth. Maybe he got it from Pink Floyd. <laughs> Come on, build on the wall, yeah. <laughs> now, April 25th, 2007, the band would would start, believe it or not, which would be their first Canadian tour, okay? And they've been around for almost 10 years. They never went to Canada for some reason. That's but amazing. The way, yeah, the, the way they wanted to do this, though, was they wanted to tour all over the country. Now, most bands, when they go to Canada, where do they go? They'll go to Vancouver, they'll yeah. go to Toronto, you go to Montreal, maybe one or, one or two other places. But for the most part, you stay kind of away from the middle part of the country, which is really just fucking tundra land, okay? And, like, you know, not that many people there. But there are enough people to make shows, okay? And they would they wanted to play places that nobody really hit. They would play the Yukon, okay? They played small clubs when they could. They played uh, bowling alleys and YMCAs, all right? Uh, they played a YMCA in Arva, Ontario, you know, nobody went to these places and they were doing small gigs and secret gigs uh, that would only be announced on like the fan message boards on the Internet. So, you know, it was kind of like a tour in Canada, like, hey, we never been there, but we're going to go all out for you guys. OK, so I was and they probably cool. did it like that. So actually, the fans would get the tickets instead of having a bunch of scalpers and all this other shit, you know? Yeah, but I think that that's true. But I think that they you know, wanted to hit the smaller towns and cities because in Canada, you know, I mean, it's, it's winter, like what, six months a year, basically. Yeah. All right. So, you know, you're not going to travel. If you're a guy in the middle of the country somewhere in Sasquatch. Okay. You know, you're not going to Sasquatching, whatever it's called. It's, it's, you're not going to go to Montreal. You can't do it. Okay. So, you know, he, he they hit all these places for these these fans, and that's very cool. Yeah. After, after the Canadian tour, uh, they had an American tour lined up, all right, and they were basically playing uh, gigs down in the south. Now, there was a gig planned. It was supposed to be the last gig of the southern leg, and then they were going to go on hiatus for a little while, and then they had some other shows planned in the fall, I believe, in America as well. Um, but at the last gig for the southern tour, in, uh, in South Haven, Mississippi, 
Meg announced that it would be the final White Stripes show ever. All right. And it came as a shock. Uh, apparently, she was done performing. She suffers from severe stage fright and severe anxiety just in general. And uh, she just couldn't deal with it anymore, dealing with the, the, the rigorous touring. Probably the Canadian tour knocked the shit out of her because it was pretty rigorous. Yeah. Uh, uh, now, the band would go on a long hiatus after that, Rob. But between 2008 and 2011, the band would be on hold with, and they would just make a couple of appearances. One major one would be on the Conan O'Brien show in February of 2009. Which I think that was the last show before he went to TBS. Yeah, it was the la- Well, it was also the last show they would ever play. Wow. Okay. Uh, they, they they didn't make any other appearances. Now, Jack was getting involved with some solo projects. He was working with a band called the Racontors, uh, which are pretty good. Um, he was also producing people. Uh, he produced uh, Loretta Lynn's album called Van Leer Rose that I believe got her a Grammy. That was a big comeback album for her. Um, they would also um, have material for a seventh album. But it's in the can. They never put it out. Wow. Yeah. Now, the Canadian tour that they did. But, Mike, let me ask a question. Jack White was always involved with other projects. He was a guy that was always busy, even though it wasn't the White Stripe, but he always did other projects. Yeah. He he, he produced a lot of people over the years. Uh, You know, even a lot of bands that that really didn't go far, the Detroit bands and stuff like that. He would play guitar on certain people's albums. he was getting to be known as, you know, very busy guy all, all out there doing, you know, studio work, live shows with the White Stripes, studio work with the White Stripes, but also, you know, producing. And, and then he had some side projects like the Recontours. Yeah. He started that after the White Stripes w- were on kind of like a hiatus, not doing anything. Um, and they he was almost like that, in that weird kind of David Bowie kind of thing. He produced the people of, instead of singing. Just I'm yeah. going to produce these people. <laughs> yeah, no, I said that's that's a good a good analogy. You know, Bowie was always busy. Yeah, and so so was Jack. Um, yeah, the Canadian tour would be filmed, okay, and it would come out on a DVD called Under the Great White Northern Lights. Yep, it was directed by Emmett Malloy, and it was released in the summer of 2007. It documents those shows. They did right across Canada in 07. Um, I have that DVD. It's fantastic. Uh, shows them really kind of their their whole studio catalog. It's not an early show. Yeah. It's a late show for them in their career. But it has everything. And one thing that um, you, got, you got to point out with the live shows. And again, I, I, I never saw them. I wish I did. Yeah, I saw that. They were good. They were very yeah, good. I, and, I know people that did, and I regret, because I remember the Bowery Ballroom shows they were doing. I was considering going, and, you know, whatever circumstances, I just didn't go. But their live shows, they never used set lists. Oh, yeah, they never did. They, that was the yeah. thing they never did. They never had a set list for any show. They just played whatever, you know, right, they were right. starting. They might have had some little bit of structure, what they were going to start with, but you never knew what song was coming next compared to the last show you saw. You know, it wasn't the same thing. And that's, you know, it, it kept with, uh, Jack felt it kept the spontaneity of the, of, the, of the live shows going. 
Now, in I think he's, I think he's right. I think it, I, I think it, I think it, you know it, it comes for a very more predictable, enjoyable show. Let me start with this, and then I'll work my way to this. Well, that's you know that is strictly for the fans. Anybody that does that, you're doing it for the fans. Yep. Because you're not doing it for yourself because it's easier to play pretty much the same set list with maybe a couple of changes every night. Yeah. You just, that's how you get your chops. You know, you you play the song all over and over and over. You throw in a couple of different ones here and there. Now, some bands. But you know what? That's also good. Let's say if you go see them multiple nights, you won't be seeing the same show. It could be a exactly. totally different playlist, totally and, different song. So that right. actually makes it fun for the fans. Exactly. That's why I think they did it. I think they did it just for the fans. Because it's not easy. Every night a different set, you know. Um, in November of 2010, they did a cover of Loretta Lynn's song Rated X. And it was on a tribute album to Loretta Lynn as well. Jack is on record saying he loves Loretta Lynn's music. I agree with him. Uh, I always play Loretta Lynn in the fucking eye bar. Um, you think he uh, hit that shit? Oh. Jack hit Loretta then the old one? <laughs> She's kind of like his grandmother. but Doesn't whatever. matter. It's no, the legend, I, I, it's no, the legend a, thing. Come here, suck my dick, Loretta. <laughs> the, the Van Lea Rose album. There's that great song called Slow Gin Fizz. Yeah. Maybe it's got a little lumped up. You yeah. never know. Okay. Late night uh, at the studio producing, baby. <laughs> and nobody around. You never know. Um, she so gave him a gummy. Out. <laughs> Gummy worm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> February 2nd, 2011, it would all be hung up for good because the band decided to to hang it up officially. Wow. Uh, that would be the end of them. Uh, you know, there's talk every once in a while them getting back together. I know Meg uh, got married. I think she had a child. Okay, so, you know, she's pretty much domesticated not playing much can she come back out and play with jack again maybe okay now you, you know they that. had that weird video they had that one song that came out like in 2017 like they even had a video with in the shower called city lights yeah was that under the white stripes name i don't remember i think it was under the white stripe it was very you didn't see none of them it was just such a song and Somebody's in the shower making faces, making hands, and drawing. It was a very bizarre video. Yeah, I think I remember it. Uh, I don't know if they released it as a single or something, but you know, it might have been like the last thing they they were going to break up and have yeah. that last come out. Uh, now, do you did you know that there was a sex tape? No, with Meg White. No. Yeah, yeah, there was, and uh, it was supposedly her and her husband. I think it might have been on their honeymoon. Or sometime, and it's her. it's fucking her. Okay, it's not like one way you go. Oh, it doesn't really look like her. No, it's her. And she and she, you know, was fucking destroyed by it. I heard that she was trying to get it all, you know, taken off the internet. But that's hard to do, you know. Wow, I didn't you know, know that. Unless you like, unless you like Tommy Lee and Pamela Anderson putting it out on purpose. All right, that that could always be destructive. Yeah, man, that was fucking, yeah. that was crazy, the Tommy Lee shit. Oh, yeah. Well, all those, the Kardashians, all that stuff, you know? So, Mike, let me uh, ask you a question. So, after so, six studio albums, two live albums, one extended play LP, and one concert film, one uh, tour documentary, 26 single, and 14 music video, where will you put them up as as a band? 
like I said, I, I put that band as the best band of the last 25 years, I think. Okay. I think they like rank up there, like in the 100. I think they're like something like between 30 or 40. Somebody put them up in a in a thing. Like best bands of all time. Yeah. Okay. Well, I don't know where I'd put them in that. You know, I don't know if I would put them as high as 30. No, I think they would be Um, either between 30 or 40. I forgot what it was because I read it somewhere. And they also sold millions. They sold close to like fucking 50 million albums too. Worldwide, yeah. Yeah. These guys. It was it was a it was a rare example, especially in the late nineties, early two thousands when they were really peaking. Yeah, you know, early two thousands. It was what was on the fucking radio then? Nothing. Nothing. It was shit, just like it is now. The last twenty years has been shit, and they were kind of like, wow, you know, these guys are rocking. They're fucking original sounding. Again, two piece with just this big sound, and and I was always amazed by it. And they were kind of like an anomaly at that time. They, they were the only thing really on the radio popular selling records that were in this genre, selling so much, you know? Yeah, and I think all the songs, pretty much most of those, a lot of the songs made it to the top 10, I think. I don't, I don't think they really well, had a... They, they only had, I think they only had like one or two American top 40 singles. Yeah. Okay, but the albums did really well. The album did it do, but they did good. Like like Nation, like like Seven Nation was really good. Yeah, well, you got to remember the whole industry was changing. Yeah, then, you know, less it was less about singles, more about albums and videos. Yeah, and, you know, you know, the single might be more geared around the video than it is about putting forty fives out, CD singles out. Yeah, they the video yeah. most of the videos all went to number one because I remember watching like yeah. MTV top twenty or VH V VH one yeah. top twenty and they always they were always up on the chart up there with the video. Right. Definitely. Definitely. So yeah, buddy, that's all I got for you. That's White pretty Stripe. good, man. We went through a lot of history you know, but the White Stripe was definitely one of the best band and um if they ever get together and you really get to see them, this is a great band to see live because who yeah. the hell knows? Yeah, I will. If they ever reunite, I will be sure to go. But you I'm know sure what? That would I think Mike, I think these guys are also in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame already. Um, no, I don't think so. I don't think it's been. I don't think it's been. You don't think so? Th- For some reason, I thought yeah. I swear I read that. Only if I'm confused with something else that I read. No, I, I didn't come across that in the research. Um, <laughs> They've been, you have to have 25 years. Isn't that what it is? For some reason, I swear. 25 years. So it's been, it's been, no, it hasn't been 25 years yet. The first album was what, 99, I think? No. Right. First album was, um, yeah, it was 99. Right. So you're talking 21 years. So they got a few more years before they can get nominated. They will get it. I think they will. They, They will. No, they will. I mean, everything that the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame looks at, you know, the record sales and all that shit, they will get in there. Okay. And the work that Jack White. I think I'm confusing what we saw when we talk about Guns N' Roses. (laughs) Guns N' Roses is in there. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they they got in there pretty first ballot, I think. Um, Yeah. So where can we find you, Rob? We haven't talked about that in a while. Where are you at? Um, You can find me on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook. um what else um email you can email me at um rob rossi getting lumped up um dot com and um pretty much uh, that's pretty much you can find me anywhere you know yeah and also on twitter (laughs) getting lumped up 
Oh, they're getting lumped up. Okay, now I'm on uh, Instagram, Rocker Mike two one two. I'm on Twitter, Rocker Mike three, and you can find me on Facebook under my real name, which is Michael Baker, B A K E R Baker. So, like always, I like to thank you, Mike, for all this great information and uh, all your hard work in looking up a lot of this information because I know it's not easy. A lot of work going to um, making these shows and notes and no, writing and. It's a labor of love, man. It's it's my pleasure. you know, and um, de- bringing the news out there. I definitely got to give you a big thank you for all your hard work because I I've been researching also looking shit up, and I'm like, holy shit! Then I look into some other shit, but wow, yeah, you know, it's not easy. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, for an hour long show, I try to give as much info as I can, and and sometimes there's things I got to leave out. Yeah. There's just no time, you know, and and you know, but we 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 get it out, we get it done. I talk fast. Yeah, so next week is Cheap Trick. <laughs> next week is Cheap Trick, and I know you're going to shoot. Nah, I'll be all right. I'll try to be good. <laughs> so for, all right, for everything else, don't get drunk, get lumped get up. See you next week. Up. <laughs>